Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode, I sat down and spoke with Bonart Monti, the Chief Growth Officer of Obligate. Obligate is a platform and marketplace that helps companies issue on-chain bonds and commercial paper to obtain funding from a variety of different investors. In this conversation, Bonart and I spoke about how bonds can be purchased on-chain, how blockchain reduces the need for intermediaries, the new opportunities that blockchain and digital assets offer companies that are seeking resources, how global regulatory standards will improve this industry, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Bonart, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation too. Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today we're joined by Bonart Mati, the Chief Growth Officer of Obligate. How are you doing today, Bonart? Hey, hi Dylan. Doing good, thanks. How about you? I'm doing great. We get to take this journey together. This is the first time on the Smart Economy podcast. We've done almost 50 episodes and this is the first video-based format that we're going to do. So thank you for taking this journey with us. I'm very excited to talk about the subject matter today, which will be on-chain bonds for regulated DeFi. And I can't wait to jump into this. But before we kind of start the conversation of who you are and what your background is, I just want to kind of ask you a high level question to kind of get the conversation rolling. And that is, is DeFi something that is unstoppable? Can DeFi be killed? Wow. Great question to start with. (laughs) I strongly believe that it's not stoppable due to several reasons. We see that there is a great progress in the industry on both the sides, like DeFi and TradFi, TradFi getting ready for the mass adoption, but also we see now tangible use cases in the space and real impact also by leveraging this technology in the real world and also enabling folks all over the world to have a more inclusive access to finance. I strongly believe it's unstoppable. It's just the beginning we are currently seeing. I love that. That's kind of what got me excited in the blockchain and cryptocurrency space back in 2017. I'm a former urban planner. I used to work for various different governments looking forward into how we can build better cities and transportation networks. And something that really excited me about that industry was leaving a long-lasting legacy. And then with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, that's also what really excited me was things like banking the unbanked and just providing access to a global market for everyone in the rest of the world to participate as long as they had a cell phone and access to the internet. So I really appreciate that response. Something that I think is really cool about your background is you come from a fintech space, but you've also spent a little bit of time in enterprise with places like Sony. So some examples of your fintech and finance have been Deutsche Bank and at GE. And you also started a company where you were the CEO for quite some time. So could you just share with us what your professional background is? What does your story arc look like for the different roles you've held up until Obligate? Oh, very interesting. To be honest and very direct with you, I started as a programmer back in 
19, I don't know, 99 programming websites, web applications like these web two applications and then joined actually Sony to help them with some e-commerce systems and also try and digitize. So it was all about digitalization and also then continued with the GE, with the GE money arm in Switzerland to build up the internet channel and grow it to really decent levels because at that time, it was really a tiny part of the business that was originated by our internet. So we had great momentum. I feel like similarly we do now have with the DeFi, we used to have that Web2 momentum to jump onto and try to make some good progress with this regard, but also see some tangible numbers. We had to fight with traditional folks who used to promote their branches and their branch business and, you know, to say like, hey, we need these people, we need tangible, we need their relationship with the customers face to face. Whereas then suddenly the internet became more and more viable. And also you would see that the customers wanted easier access to financing, for example, to credit cards, whatever, to car leasing and all these things. So I joined GE, then started my career in the finance space. As I said, building the internet channel, trying also to help SMEs with lending. Then I joined a team that started a fintech to disrupt the industry in the consumer lending and SME lending space by providing this instant credit decision online and, and being able to conclude a loan application purely online. That was back in 2008 to 2011. So that helped me actually to try and also be with the first movers in the space and aim for disruption because the traditional finance space was just too heavy, too much of legacies, too expensive, a lot of inefficiencies. And that was my first wave to join this space and moved over to also found another fintech startup in the SME landing space. I only joined the DLT slash DeFi space like three years ago when I helped blockchain-based factoring company, Hive Terminal, to expand to Europe and uh, get more of a institutional grade of status, you know, coming from an ICO and then trying to establish itself in the real world and uh, dealing with real SMEs and uh, helping them with working capital. So yeah, and here I am. I feel like being back in the programmer age where I used to start <laughs> my career, especially because in our space, you know, you just have to understand everything. How do smart contracts work? How do we interact with the real world and all about this? So there is kind of a tech background needed in order to understand everything. And basically I joined Obligate at the beginning of the year. We have a great founders team here, like three out of four are lawyers. <laughs> As you can imagine, in this space, it's about the regulatory framework. It's about legal engineering. And of course, you need to have the tech people combine these two disciplines and come up with a product that actually solves a real problem. Yeah, that's really cool that you have a kind of programming background and you are also part of like the internet evolution, the wave of introducing processes that the internet could do to reduce times and speeds when it comes to delivering loans. So I guess an interesting parallel that I want to ask you about is what do you see with things like DeFi today and how do they relate to your time at like GE? 
when you were utilizing and leveraging the internet to reduce processes for distributing loans and things of this nature, are you feeling a similar type of friction? Or is the world kind of ready to adapt and they're able to say, hey, we've seen this wave with fintech before. Now we're seeing this new wave with DeFi. Are you able to kind of see that the world will be able to move a little bit quicker? Or are you seeing a lot of the same kind of pain points? Hey, Dylan, I mean, there are so many similarities here. There are kind of the same challenges, but just on a different scale. Whereas previously, it used to be within the organization trying to convince people and jump on this train where it's not something that would disrupt the whole company or eliminate jobs in the company, but rather something complementary that can help us as a company to succeed and also respond to the customer demand, right? And it's the same with DeFi, to be honest. And it's at a larger scale now because we need uh, regulation, we need uh, an environment that helps us to interact with the traditional finance world. And you said it in the beginning, right? There are so many folks out there who are unbanked still that the access to finance, to the capital markets is very limited to only a certain group or segments of companies and people. So I think it's a different game and at a different scale in a different league. I strongly believe due to the fact that we have the community who is so fascinated and so excited about this new way of collaborating, interacting with each other. And the main point is here really the intermediaries that you don't need them. So it's really DeFi and there is no counterparty risk we don't need to wait for somebody to tell us like how should things be done when we want to have a transaction together, like peer-to-peer. -peer. Of course, regulation is needed in order to get some standards in place, at least to help us, you know, that we are speaking about the same when we have a transaction that we know that's security and it's not something in between. So things like that will help, of course, and there is still a lot of work to be done. But I think we are now at a larger scale and it will, in my opinion, the progress will be much faster than we used to be back in times for the internet. Because nowadays you just hear all these big names speaking about tokenization and DeFi and Bitcoin and uh, wrapping this type of assets to make them also investable for traditional investors. So I think it's a different game now and at a different pace, a much higher pace. I might be jumping around a little bit, but you have an extensive background in TradFi. And so you were mentioning earlier in this conversation that you finally took the leap into Obligate this year. You were kind of getting your feet wet three years ago. Is it these big names, these kind of institutions, the BlackRock stating that they want to have an ETF, large banks stating that they want to start leveraging more than just custodial solutions for Bitcoin and ETH, but they want to look into staking and DeFi and all these other Web3 enabled processes. Is it kind of these big names that are coming on board that gave you the confidence to kind of go full time into bringing Obligate to the world? Yeah, for me, it was like the next logical step for me personally, but also suddenly everyone started to talk about it, to speak about it, to you suddenly were able to buy a Tesla with Bitcoin. The adoption started more and more. You know, I moved from tech to more the commercial part of the business. And now I feel like 
being exactly in the middle where I can connect tech with customer needs and customer demands to produce or create solutions based on this tech. So it is for sure the big names, but it is also the regulation around it. So for example, in Switzerland, two years back, the DLT Act came into force. That's really groundbreaking because it gives us a legal framework to work on and the basis to create a lot of applications, use cases, which have the respective legal certainty also and enforceability at the end of the day and, you know, make sure that investors are protected, issuers are protected. So I strongly believe, and this is why I joined the company, that this is going to be the next big theme in the short to midterm for sure. I'm happy that you keep bringing up regulations because Switzerland has been very forward thinking. And this is actually something I'm really curious to hear your perspective and insights about. Within the country, you have Zug, which is the Crypto Valley. And then you have various different cities that there are companies that are locating. What are the differences between the cities and the regions in Switzerland? Are you seeing that Maybe Zug has more companies that are locating there and maybe like Zurich has builders and developers that are locating there. Are there any nuances like that within Switzerland? Dylan, come on. I mean, Switzerland is not as big as you might imagine. It's like, (laughs) you know, you're comparing now Fifth Avenue with, I don't know, the Bronx. It's really close to each other. So... Yeah, of course, Zook has some special tax reliefs and stuff that incentivizes these type of companies to be based there. But I was raised in Zurich, so I still believe Zurich is the center of the world. So it's about Zurich, you know. But in general, it's very close to each other. And you have the same folks working in Zurich and Zook, which is mainly these two hops. In Zook, you have like the most companies from the space, but Zurich is also very well established. And you have also Geneva, where we also see a lot of companies popping up and being established also from the space. So it's Switzerland and it's the regulation, it's tax reliefs, and mainly the first mover capabilities in terms of when you see some trends evolving or maturing, you rather try to define the rules of the game rather than being left behind. So what currently happens in the US is like a very good example of this. You just need to make the rules instead of, you know, starting to play and then say, hey, wait a moment, that was a foul. You know, who said that this is not the way how we should play? So rather than retrospectively creating the rules or say uh, putting people to jail or whatever, I think Switzerland has made a great progress to define the rules and and, uh, have clear regulation, legal standards in place when it comes to tokenization, when it comes to security tokens, when it comes to everything that is related to our space, basically. It's very clear when you're building something, you know it works and it's going to work and it's going to be accepted. It's compliant. It's legally enforceable. So... Yeah, that helps a lot. Yeah, I can't agree with you anymore. I currently am watching brain drain happen here in the States. I'm seeing friends leave the industry, going to more traditional roles in software development. We're hearing a lot of negative stories coming out of the US about companies that are offshoring and are choosing to locate elsewhere. 
So this is currently a moment of instability and I sense a lot of fear. I live in Denver. ETH Denver is a major conference that happens every year. And that was one of the major themes this year is VCs and lawyers are afraid of what's happening in the States. And the VCs and the lawyers are seeing a lot of the companies that they work with are starting to offshore. So you really hit home on a point that is a little bit sore for me as someone who's been working in the space since 2017. But in innovative industries, these are the waters that we have to tread. So something I'm curious about is how Mika EU's regulations that recently got approved might have impacted or maybe even helped solidify the regulations that are in Switzerland. Are you noticing any sort of positive externalities as those regulations have gone through? Yeah, I mean, Mika is a great framework. There is quite of an overlap with the DLT Act in Switzerland. And essentially what it means for us, even though we are not part of this ecosystem of the EU, but still we most likely will have to comply with it and also apply certain elements of it. But in general, I would say it's like 95 to 99% in line with what we have here in Switzerland. Certain things would be qualified as investments, brokerage type of activities, which would also require certain additional licensing. But here, I think Obligate is very well positioned by the fact that we have so many partners on board, those are renowned names on our cap table, such as the Swiss Stock Exchange Investment Arm. We have Early Bird, like who is the biggest VC in the space. And we are also a Circle portfolio company. So we try to utilize, leverage these uh, partnerships. We have also a license from a BaFin regulated investment broker, which allows us also to automatically comply with this type of laws or new laws and be a kind of a bit a step ahead when it comes to regulation. So if it would mean that we would need an additional license, we would already be there, even though today we act as a marketplace, as a platform, as a technology provider, if you want to connect the parties together, but we still claim that we are a regulated platform because we are. We are regulated in Switzerland as a financial intermediary. We're acting under this investment brokerage umbrella from the partner we have in Germany who is Buffin regulated. So we are following this movement very closely and will adapt if necessary, but still aim to remain flexible in terms of how we can serve the customers without having to now obtain a banking license, for example. We don't want to go that route because we still aim for DeFi, intermediation, no counterparty risk, and have the law reflected where it's needed, but try to offer the best service possible to our customers. Yeah, that's really awesome. I see a lot of similarities with GDPR and the right to be forgotten and kind of how this is just superimposed now on websites that we visit where we get to choose what kind of cookies we want to have enabled or not. So it's really interesting to kind of hear that even though there's like 95% alignment, there's still that 5% that you might need to worry about. And the line that Obligate wants to take, which would be focusing more on the DeFi side of things rather than going after like a money transmitter license or a banking license or something like that. Something I'm actually really curious about is when did you first hear about cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Ethereum? What was your first exposure to the asset class? And given your background in fintech and maybe 
the relationships you might have had with traditional financial institutions? Did that impact your view on cryptocurrencies and digital assets? Did you view them with skepticism? What was your kind of intro into cryptocurrencies in your initial view? Yeah, and to be very honest, that was back in the years when this first white paper came up, where Bitcoin came into the lips of everyone. So my initial reaction, to be honest, was a bit with skepticism. As with every new technology or trend, I used to remember a phrase, I don't know by whom it was made, whether it was Henry Ford or someone else, who said that first they laugh at you, then they ignore you, and then you win. So the reaction was always the same. Also, when I started the fintech back in 2010, it felt like the same. You know, people didn't take seriously. They said, oh, you guys, you fintechs. I mean, that's funny enough. It's like a website with some code behind it. And then you call it fintech, you know. So that was like the moment where people wouldn't take you serious. But at some point, it became material in the sense of tremendous volumes being traded over the internet and internet being the main channel for acquiring new volumes for the business. So personally, to be honest, even though I was also in the space, I was also a bit skeptical in the beginning, even though the technology, due to my background, that was very fascinating. And I really enjoyed also following this trend a bit and reading about it and also interacting a bit with the community. But unfortunately, I didn't buy Bitcoin from the beginning. So. <laughs> Same. <laughs> so, But technology-wise, it was always interesting to hear about it. And I think it was not taken seriously due to the fact that the people who had interacted with it were not always trustworthy. There were some topics around unethical methods. You know, you used to hear that it was a currency for the dark net and things like that. So I think that was the big issue in the beginning. But suddenly, at some point, it started to become material. And I think that was the time where the effect and the power of the crowd, in my opinion, where people just realized, hey, this is something that can connect us with each other and also can help for the financial inclusion globally. Yeah, the crypto anarchist, highly right-leaning libertarian message of Bitcoin's early days is something that turned off a lot of people and kind of excluded a lot of, I don't want to make it sound negative, but rational thinkers or maybe more centrist individuals. So that also was what made it difficult for me to kind of grasp and glob on to this space. But by 2017, the message that I bought into, which was the hype back then, which was tokenize the world, run ICOs, let's decentralize Uber, let's decentralize Airbnb. It really was kind of an empowering message that I think was able to reach the masses. So I feel like our story arcs are similar in that way in which we first looked at this, we saw the people that were into it. I too only assumed Bitcoin was used for things like Silk Road and for darknet activities. By 2017, that message started to grow beyond Silk Road, Silk Road 2.0, and all these nasty things that were kind of associated with the asset class back then. So I know that Obligate focuses on companies and corporations for on-chain bonds, but I am curious to hear your insights into the volcano bonds that El Salvador is using to help grow the technological city that's going on there. Just from your perspective, how is a country that's adopting Bitcoin to back its bonds 
How is that changing the perspective of companies? Are companies beginning to look more into leveraging digital assets as collateral because there is a country that is taking the leap? Or is there not really any relation and companies maybe have different incentives to use cryptocurrencies or digital assets as collateral? Yeah, I mean, it always comes back to the question, what problems do you want to solve or do you have to solve? And at the end of the day, it's about access to capital. What we see in our ecosystem and from the issuer side is that many issuers, they lack in access to finance due to several reasons. There is the financing gap. There are errors in the capital market, lack of information that flows to a kind of a perception of risk to lenders, asymmetries in this type of things, but also the high requirements on collateral. It's only economically viable for certain size of companies to get access to capital. So what we see is that it's not about wanting to deal with digital assets, but maybe if that's a way on how to become more inclusive and to get access to capital, they will get used to it. So far, we see that there is a transition going on. There is not like, you know, all the companies are already exposed to digital assets and already familiar with uh, wallet infrastructures. There is still a lot of educational work required from our side when it comes to the issuers. Of course, not like the Web3 companies. They are absolutely fine with it. But like we speak about SMEs all over the place and especially also in developing countries, there is always less affinity to this technology. Yeah, so they see it as a way to get more access to capital and especially when it's a regulated framework around which they can have these transactions, you know, have the KYC, KYP, everything settled uh, via a platform, for example, that is regulated, they would feel comfortable, you know, when they are accompanied from the onboarding until the settlement, the on and off ramping, when you can support them along these processes, they see the advantages. They are also accepting the fact that first you need to realize it's not crypto, it's the technology. Yeah, it's not a cryptocurrency, but it's the technology. And we suddenly have a security tokenized natively on chain that is now called a token. You have a token in your hand. It's a bond token. You're holding that in your wallet. And suddenly it can make a huge impact to your daily business, can help you with the working capital. And I think it's a way to achieve your goals. And that is going to be the trigger, in my opinion, also for the mass adoption. So for me, also tokenization was like the key in 2017-18 and not only the ICO part, but now also the security token part. That was key when we start tokenizing real world assets and use all the advantages that come along with it, right? So fractionalizing, bundling assets, using collateral from the real world, tokenize it, and then suddenly you can have like, I don't know, intellectual property in form of a token. You can put it as collateral, raise capital. I think that's very important. But as I said, there is still a lack of knowledge with this regard. So if we as an industry, as a space can contribute to make this technology user-friendly, have a clear, easy UX that will allow these folks to interact with the technology. 
I think that is the point of time where we will see the mass adoption and it certainly has started. So that's for sure. That's really interesting insight that the companies you're collaborating with aren't necessarily leveraging Obligate because they're DeFi natives just looking to use crypto in any way, that this is actually a way that is reducing frictions and providing more opportunities than traditional mediums offer them. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when you compare what it requires to issue a bond, we have done a research, we have analyzed this. So we counted all the intermediaries that are required for a bond issuance, for example, and we counted 13 of them. So you have the financial market infrastructure, you have all these intermediaries, the paying agents, settlement agents, you have the banks who will transfer the funds and you have the law firms and all of them. So that sounds already like a lot of cost associated with it and frictions and inefficiencies. So by leveraging the technology, basically you can eliminate all these intermediaries. What we have done, for example, leveraging public blockchains, using smart contracts, DVP, atomic swap of stable coins and e-notes, that suddenly eliminates all the intermediaries. You have the same even better legal certainty. You don't have a counterparty risk and you can achieve your goals. You just need to understand what it is about. And especially when you are in a regulated framework, as an investor, you know you are protected. As an issuer, you know I'm dealing with serious people here who can open up new sources of funding for me, including those of you know traditional investors. Because also that's the point, right, that you also just mentioned. It's not only about the DeFi folks, and for sure, that was one of our aims, and it is our vision to bring more regulated assets into our space, to make real-world assets investable to the DeFi investors, but with a better link to yields, to the real economy, and as a new asset class compared to the highly volatile cryptocurrencies we see, which are purely based on speculation and not always like real fundamentals. So this is for sure something that allows DeFi investors to have advantages by having access to these type of assets, but also traditional investors like TradFi investors. They didn't have this type of assets on the horizon because this type of issuances, as I mentioned, I mean, if you eliminate all these intermediaries, you can reduce the cost. Uh, we estimated up to 82%. You can reduce the cost by 82% and have transactions settled five times faster, for example. And by doing so, you open up a new asset class because suddenly SMEs all over the world, but also larger corporates can consider to issue a bond, which was just economically not viable before. And now suddenly it is. So we strongly believe that this is a huge case. I mean, we are not the only ones in the space. We are also collaborating with other parties because we believe that together we can make a much bigger impact and it will only succeed if we try to bring trust on the table from our space. And we strongly believe that we will play a big role with this regard, but there are also other parties who are doing great progress 
And it's good to see that the industry is evolving. Yeah, I think that has kind of been a big trend for the end of 2022. Most of 2023 is bringing RWA's real world assets on chain. And that's one of the benefits that blockchain offers is it's an open source, immutable public ledger that everybody can access. And you've hit this point a bunch in this conversation. When you have well-defined regulations leveraging this technology, then you just provide more open, transparent sort of information for everyone who can participate. Something that as an investor like myself, I'm just a retail investor. I own Bitcoin and other crypto assets. I also own stocks and index funds. So I understand kind of where with the speculative nature of cryptocurrencies, you know, price goes up, price goes down because of the free market and people just speculate. When it comes to like stocks, there's price to earning ratio. I can get like quarterly earnings from these companies. I understand where I can see gains and yield from these assets. When it comes to bonds, where does the yield come from? How am I earning any sort of interest on this? Yeah, very interesting. So yeah, I mean, also, this is something that is suddenly possible, right? The access to this type of assets to bonds, which typically in the TradFi are rather accessible to institutional investors. And by tokenizing this instrument and securities, we suddenly have access. Also, private investors have access to this type of assets. And these are typical fixed income instruments where you have a fixed rate defined, you know exactly what you're going to get at the end of the day. Obviously, there is a risk-free component in the rate that is usually tied to government bonds, treasury bills, a kind of yield rates. And on top of that, you have like the credit risk margin that reflects the credit worthiness or the rating of the underlying assets. In this case, you have companies who issue the bonds and based on their rating and the credit assessment, you have the credit spreads reflected on the margins you get, on the yields you get, and you can diversify. You can choose to invest in secured transactions or in unsecured transactions, but basically the credit margin will be reflected, which is a combination of credit worthiness, underlying collateral, and all these elements that would make up then your yield at the end of the day. Yeah. And that was something that as I was digging around the platform, I was just curious to learn a little bit more. What's the difference between a secured and an unsecured transaction? Is that the term that you used? Yeah. A secured transaction or a secured issuance is a bond, a secured bond where an issuer has put a collateral on the table. So it's backed by collateral, typically some real-world assets, invoice receivables, uh, loan receivables, other type of assets you can put as collateral, but also digital assets. We are very familiar in the space that you would pledge or put uh, digital assets as collateral. So in this case, we call them secured bonds and the non-secured bonds there, you would uh, purely rely on the rating of the company and reputation of the company, and there is no collateral assigned to the transaction. So that's the difference. And there you can really play with your portfolio. You can have parts of your portfolio, you know, compound of secured transactions and part of it unsecured, depending on your risk appetite. 
Cool. So there's an opportunity for diversification when it comes to the types of bonds that somebody can hold through Obligate. So thank you for clearing that up because me being an outsider in this industry, I just like didn't understand what that was. Something I'm also curious about, and I'm super happy you're coming from a developer background and a programmer background, so you can probably highlight some nuances as to why Obligate opted to build on top of Polygon. Why did the team choose to build on top of an L2 as opposed to some sort of alternative L1 or even Ethereum as the base layer? Yeah, that's a very good question. So actually, we used to be on a private blockchain initially dealing with also some larger banks in the space. So we even had you know, Credit Suisse and some other corporates investing via our platform. And that was done on a private blockchain. The reason why we moved to a public blockchain and then specifically to Polygon was mainly due to the efficiencies, I mean, in speed and also cost efficiencies. But also it has established in the space, but also in Switzerland is one of the public blockchains where big institutions and also the crypto banks we have in Switzerland chose basically Polygon to work on. And on top of that, we get uh, great support from the team and uh, the community, which is really great. And also try to leverage our network, their network, use synergies among the players who are connected with the Polygon blockchain and the ecosystem. So it sounds like Switzerland in general, Polygon is kind of like an accepted chain or I guess societally speaking, it's been approved by a bunch of different actors in the space. I earn my bread and butter by covering the NEO blockchain, which is a, an alternative L1. I've been covering this project since 2017. So I'm always curious to hear what the appetite is for other types of blockchain networks. So are you seeing that in Switzerland, there are also other builders that are exploring other networks? Or are you really seeing kind of an agglomeration, a lot of companies that are just choosing to build on Polygon? So this conversation around exploring other blockchain networks is not even happening. Yeah, I think we are hitting a topic that is really crucial. I think it's also very important that we get this interoperability fixed at some point, you know, that we don't have to deal with these multiple blockchains. That, in my opinion, is crucial that this cross-chain communication is fixed at some point. So we definitely see focus or intentions to standardize things, especially in Switzerland. There is an association that, for example, also is putting standards on smart contracts, how they are built, how they should be built. I mean, standards are really crucial for the industry to get to mass adoption. And the same with selection of blockchains, in my opinion. So there is uh, certain players who are really systematically relevant, I would say, for the industry, such as, you know, we have uh, Signum in Switzerland, we have Seba and other players, the crypto banks, there is the Ethereum Foundation as such, and many other builders. So we have seen that a couple of them who are relevant in the industry would try to focus on established layers. And that's where we put our bets on. So it's Polygon. We strongly believe, I mean, we see really uh, some big names building on Polygon, but we are open and also have on the roadmap certain developments going on to expand to other chains. But ideally, we would need to solve this problem maybe differently without having to integrate every and each single blockchain individually. 
Yeah, no, I really appreciate that insight. And this is maybe a philosophical question. Are we at a place in the growth of the blockchain and crypto industry where we're seeing a player or seeing an entity that is building a, a proper solution for interoperability and cross-chain communication. If you just look back since DeFi summer in 2020 at all the bridge hacks and DeFi hacks, there's just so many, so many billions of dollars, maybe even trillions at this point, have been lost or stolen. And this is an Achilles heel for connecting different blockchain ecosystems and infrastructure. So are we there yet? Are there people that are building these cross-chain communication solutions? Or are we still at the experiment phase? Do you have a good sense for these types of teams that might be getting the answer, might be getting closer to the solution? I'm not so familiar with it, to be honest. I see that there are traditional players who are aiming to put some standards in here. There are these zero-knowledge-proof intentions to bring certainty in place. But I'm not sure whether it's going to be fixed by these bridges and signal fixes, as you correctly mentioned. I mean, we saw all these hacks that doesn't really bring trust on the table. So unless we haven't solved this, and that's not really an answer to your question, but this is the reason why we still have builders who migrate protocols from one chain to another and just have these redundancies in place instead of having a clear lane where you would have this interoperability. But yeah, I'm not really aware of teams who are building in the space with this regard. Yeah, no, that's a good question and a great response. I myself am not so certain that there is a single solution right now or a single team that is building this. There are certain teams that are building for certain aspects. When you look at like ThorChain, they're building for layer one to layer one, essentially atomic swaps, though that's not the correct terminology or the correct processes, but that's just a single asset. That's cross-chain asset swapping. It's not necessarily cross-chain communication. So as an industry, we still have a long way to go. Kind of wrapping up, I want to bring this question back to the forefront of the Smart Economy podcast as we have great guests such as yourself join who have a variety of different backgrounds and insights and perspectives. So this is kind of philosophical, but in 10 years, where do you see the blockchain and cryptocurrency industry? Yeah, it's a great question. So ideally in 10 years, we have solved the interoperability question. Ideally, we have the larger banks, the commercial banks participating in the ecosystem. May this be by them, you know, introducing their stable coins or whatever it means to help us to get the mass adoption. I think there we need to have global guidelines and rules how to play because, you know, all these jurisdictions, these individual laws and regulatory frameworks, it's good enough. But unless we don't have like a global playbook for the space, that's still going to be very difficult to differentiate between markets and jurisdictions. And it will create barriers instead of opening up the lanes for a global communication as we intend to have like a more inclusive uh, financial world and a globally connected world. So ideally, we should agree on what is now valid, what is the security, what is not, and so on. Maybe DAOs will play a role, a big role in the future. 
I mean, you see these securitizations from the TradFi where things get pulled and made investable to TradFi investors or private debt funds and other lenders. I think they will play a crucial role due to the fact that you can dedicate certain purposes and missions when it comes to raising capital and will have clear rules. You can segregate funds and, you know, have clearly defined rules on how things get distributed or collected. And yeah, standards. I think standards will be helpful and we will help them in 10 years. In 10 years, we will be able to hopefully reduce all the frictions that we have today. All these discussions about, you know, interoperability, different type of tokens, smart contracts, methodologies on how we build things. This complexity will need to be reduced and we work together, I think we'll get there. And I've never seen this collaboration more than in our space, to be honest. I mean, sometimes we speak to competitors and we exchange ideas and there is not this competitive attitude as it used to be earlier in the TradFi world, maybe still today. But yeah, I'm very confident that we'll get there. That will help us to get to mass adoption. So we hope to be playing a big role in the space as obligate. But for me personally, also, this is a very exciting journey. I'm very happy that I joined the space, first of all, in general. And it's really very interesting and it helps us to solve real problems, but also make sure that everyone in the world and globally has access to capital. Bernard, I love it. The future of interoperability amongst institutions, longstanding institutions, maybe even banks that offer things like stable coins is definitely a bright future. And I think that between now and then, it does take the companies like Obligate who do provide access to traditional ways of fundraising for companies and for raising debt in order to build. I think it takes the Obligates of the world to slowly get there. And as we see more and more regulations become clearly defined across the world and hopefully more of a global international standard, then maybe one day we will be there where we're going to see all sorts of real world assets on chain. But between now and then, who are the companies you want to talk to? Who are the projects you want to collaborate with? And what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? It's the asset managers, digital asset managers, you know, crypto whales, and not only to get them and invest in the ecosystem in this type of assets, but also to contribute to the growth of the space as such, and also to contribute to the real world by providing liquidity and capital to the real world and to the SMEs of the world and globally. So that's what I would wish. And also the traditional finance world to be more active and proactive, try out things, you know, run POCs in the space. And yeah, it's nothing to fear. There is a perceived risk. But if you deal with the topic, if you make sure you understand what it is about, how it is working, and you have the legal certainty, you know, then it's just about being ready to try things out and do some first mover approaches. If somebody is one of these crypto whales or a TradFi who's willing to experiment and try bringing real world assets on chain, what's the best way that they can contact you or reach out to Obligate? Yeah, I mean, they can go to Obligate.com or they can contact us on our Telegram channel. They can reach out to hello at Obligate.com. We are everywhere uh, on Twitter. 
or X now. And yeah, it's about, you know, having a real impact in the world by at the same time generating yield that is really tied to the real economy. And yeah, happy to speak to these folks. And we are always here to support, to answer questions and get in touch. Bernard, thank you so much for coming to join the Smart Economy podcast. The intersection of real world assets and bringing them on chain has been something that is increasingly becoming more interesting to me personally over the past year or so. So it was a pleasure to be able to dig into this with you today. Thanks a lot, Dylan. It was great speaking to you. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining. Cheers. Thanks, Dylan. Well, what did you think of that conversation? A major topic in the blockchain space is how this technology disintermediates third parties from various different processes. And Obligate is no different. It was really interesting to hear how Obligate can reduce the costs of third parties by 80% and increase the speeds in which resources can be accessed by up to five times. It was also really interesting to hear why the team opted to build on Polygon and the regional adoption in Switzerland of this particular blockchain. And I wholeheartedly agreed with Bonart's stance that there needs to be some sort of cross-chain messaging protocol and interoperability for the future of this industry to become mainstream. With that said, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you're a NEO token holder and you support what we're doing here, please don't hesitate to vote for NEO News Today as your council member. We've proudly been serving the NEO ecosystem since 2017, and we'll continue to use portions of our income to invest into ecosystem growth initiatives, as well as this production of the Smart Economy podcast. We look forward to catching you next time.